0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In Metro Denver, roads like Federal and Colfax are an odd mix, part highway, part main street. They're also
1: dangerous. Let's try to cross the street here. I need to show you something on the other side.
0: Oh, God, we're going to try to cross the street. It feels like Frogger. Okay, all right. There's a road on the left. Today, our transportation reporter on why Denver's campaign to eliminate traffic deaths remains in the slow lane. We'll also hear about improvements coming to one stressful stretch. And later, they fought to be taken seriously as women in the field of botany in the 1930s. The doubts and discrimination they faced persisted on the Colorado River as they documented the plants of the Grand Canyon. We'll learn about their scientific expedition from an author who retraced their journey.
1: If you have a car you're ready to part with, have you thought about donating it to Colorado Public Radio? Car donations from listeners like you are a really important part of CPR's funding, and it's easy to do. Just fill out a form, schedule a pickup, and supply the title. Soon your car will be on its way to help fund the fair, fact-based news reporting you count on. Get started at cpr.org/support. And thanks.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Crossing the street shouldn't put your life in jeopardy, but too often it does. An experience I had just this week, getting from one side of Colfax to the other. More on that in a bit. First, our transportation reporter, Nathaniel Minor, brings us the story of a failed policy. Denver's now outgoing mayor said he'd get traffic deaths and dismemberments to zero. In the seven years since, the problem's actually gotten worse.
1: Think back to 2015. Denver was growing like crazy, and so was its traffic. City leaders were trying to figure out how to convert drivers into pedestrians, cyclists, and transit riders. They'd go to other cities to get ideas. And on one of these trips in San Francisco, Mayor Michael Hancock heard about a bold goal that the coastal city had just adopted. It wanted to eliminate traffic deaths and serious injuries by redesigning its streets. New York had just signed on too.
2: Driving in New York City isn't easy, but saving a life is as simple as it gets. The Vision Zero initiative.
1: Hancock loved it. Safer streets would make it easier for people to ditch their cars. Denver adopted the Vision Zero pledge in 2016.
3: Driving isn't easy. Saving a life
1: is. But since then, deaths have risen. Traffic fatalities hit a two decade high in the last two years. Hancock says that wasn't a surprise. We knew that we're working to shift the culture. We didn't go into this with rose colored lenses. Most American cities that have tried to eliminate traffic deaths have also failed. Some factors are outside of the city's control like the growing popularity of bigger cars. But the places that have been successful, especially in Europe where the idea comes from, they've embraced the biggest factor they do control, their streets. Some have radically reshaped roads to keep drivers from going fast enough to kill. That hasn't happened yet in Denver and lots of people have died. Andy Morris is standing at a very busy corner in Northwest Denver. And, and tell me what we're looking at here.
4: Um, well, we're looking at the ghost bike, the memorial that we put in place to remember my brother. And uh, it's pretty hammered. It's been run over twice.
1: Morris's brother, Logan Rocklin, was killed while riding his bicycle across Sheridan Boulevard last December. Rocklin was newly married, his wife was fighting leukemia, but they were hoping to have kids. Now, his family and friends have to live their lives without him.
4: We just miss him so much. You know? It's hard.
1: Morris wipes grime from the bicycle. She retraces a poem written on the seat. Could you read it for me?
4: Uh, yeah. For what is it to die? But to she
1: recites famous lines from The Prophet by Khalil Gibran.
4: And when the earth shall claim your limbs, then you shall truly dance. For Logan Rockland,
2: beloved by many.
1: The driver that blew a red light and killed Logan Rockland was speeding, at least 50 miles per hour. Denver has failed to tackle deadly speeding in a systematic way. One problem is the design of roads like Sheridan Boulevard. It's easy to drive fast on these straight, wide roads. Many of them double as state highways, which adds another layer of bureaucratic complication. They account for more than 80 percent of Denver's traffic deaths and serious injuries. But they're also vital to how tens of thousands of people move here every day. Emily Gleckner is Denver's traffic engineer.
4: We have to be realistic about the fact that some of these roads do carry a huge amount of vehicular traffic, and so we still need to be able to accommodate those people that are moving in vehicles.
1: Gleckner says they are making changes to slow drivers. Things like new medians and retime signals that give pedestrians more time to cross. Some of those measures have helped, but numbers are still getting worse. Jill Locantore with the Denver Streets Partnership says that means these roads need more than just tweaks. She says they need to be completely overhauled.
4: We need fewer streets designed like highways. And we can get there if we agree as a community that that's the kind of city we want to be. But it does require us to become a different city than we are today.
1: Making that transformation is very hard. But data from one of Denver's peers shows it's possible to be a big city with safer streets. Seattle has a similar population to Denver. But it's moved to make itself denser and has narrowed some of its wide, dangerous streets. It has a fraction of the traffic deaths, too. And road design isn't the only factor. Speed enforcement is way, way down in Denver. Data analyzed by CPR News shows police last year wrote just a third of the speeding tickets they were writing a decade ago. Police acknowledge the drop and blame staffing levels. And until very recently, the city couldn't use speed cameras on deadly arterial streets like Sheridan Boulevard. How to address these challenges will largely be up to Denver's new mayor, Mike Johnston. He declined an interview request. But during the campaign, he told CPR News that he supported the Vision Zero goal.
5: Well, I think it's aggressive enough and I think it's admirable and I think we have to take it upon ourselves to make it achievable. Johnston
1: says he supports more automated enforcement, slower speeds, cheaper transit, and more bike lanes, too. His power will also rely on public will. He'll need to convince car-reliant Denverites that slower streets are better, so he can get buy-in for needed changes. There is a growing constituency of crash survivors who are demanding action, people like Taylor Yoakum. Yokum is a lanky 20-something who once dreamed of playing professional volleyball, but she was hit by a speeding driver who ran a red light near the University of Denver in 2019.
6: The last thing I remember was going out with my friends, like leaving my house. The next thing I remember is just waking up in a hospital bed with no idea why I was there.
1: The force of the collision tore some of the blood vessels that connect Yokum's brain to her skull. She was in the hospital for weeks and therapy for months, She had hoped to get back on the volleyball court, but eventually she had to give it up for good.
0: just kind of feels like you get the wind knocked out of you.
6: You know, like it's somebody else's actions that stole my future from me.
1: Now, Yoakam is hypersensitive to street safety issues. She wants people in power, people like Denver's next mayor, to make it a high priority.
6: I think that it's a design choice to have unsafe streets,
1: Yokum's life isn't what she thought it would be, but she's trying to make the best of it. She's pursuing a career in advertising after graduating during the pandemic. Her commencement was held virtually, so she threw her own graduation ceremony. She went back to University Boulevard, and this time she crossed it safely. CPR's Nathaniel Minor there as
0: Denver Mayor Michael Hancock leaves office only to see traffic deaths and injuries rise. Well, Nate wanted to illustrate why it's been so tough for the city to make streets safer. So he and I met up at the intersection of Colfax and Utica, just west of downtown.
1: Okay, Ryan, so I asked you to join me here on West Colfax. Uh-huh. We're standing here, but let's let's try to cross the street here. I need to show you something on the other side. We're, oh,
0: God, we're going to try to cross the street. It feels like Frogger. Okay. All right. There's oh, a break Lord. on the left. Okay. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah, that's not fun. No, that was that was really bad, but um, I actually... Just wanted to show you to really make you feel how dangerous this road is when you're on your feet and you're not in a car. And the the cars are really barreling down here, you know? Right. Speed limits 30; they're probably going 35 or 40. Um, The road's really wide; it's four lanes across plus a turn lane. But you know, think about it. Like this is West Colfax; it is both a main street and it's a highway. You've got 30,000 cars that drive down this road every day. And you got lots of businesses and people walking around. And those two things make for a really dangerous combination. Seven people died on this road in 2019 and 2020. And more than 20 were seriously hurt. Seven people in just two years. You know, you're saying that this is both a main
0: street and a highway. Reminds me of other streets in Denver. I mean, I'm thinking Colorado Boulevard, Federal. They're like highways that also have shops on them,
1: you know? Yeah, totally. It's a really bad combination, it's really dangerous, it's just kind of how the city developed to this point. And roads like this account for 80% of the city's traffic deaths and serious injuries. Like, these roads are the biggest problem. I can understand. So I brought you here because this road, this particular stretch of West Colfax between Federal and Sheridan, it's gonna change soon. Residents, businesses have been pushing for safety improvements for a very long time, And I want to tell you about a key moment where that support was really galvanized. Oh, tell me. Okay, so back in 2015, the Neighborhood Business Improvement District completely overhauled this very block of West Colfax for one day. They dragged trees out into the middle of the street. They built protected bike lanes. They extended the sidewalks out. And they narrowed the road to just two lanes of traffic, basically through a mini street festival. Uh Dan Shaw, with that group, says people really loved it. I
0: mean, it was really inspiring. I mean, it was really amazing because the reaction from people was so positive. I mean, we not only did we do a survey, we did a chalkboard where we asked people sort of open-ended questions and got open-ended answers, and there was just so much
1: enthusiasm for these kinds of changes. People loved how quiet it was. They said they wanted Colfax to be like this all the time.
0: Gosh, it was like a fairy tale transformation of Colfax, but that was eight years ago now. The
1: changes are only finally coming. They are coming. So by next year, this street will have a median running down the middle of it. Okay. Um, They're going to put some greenery in there, so that should be nice. That'll do a few things. It'll prevent drivers from taking left turns, because what the city and the state found is drivers taking a left turn. They don't see a pedestrian. They hit the pedestrian. So those were causing a lot of crashes, those turn lanes. Some of those are going to go away. And it'll give pedestrians a protected place to wait this median while they try to cross. But there's quite a few things that are not going to happen either, right? The protected. It's, it's not going to be that
0: kind of like park feeling that they had eight years ago. No,
1: it is going to be sort of a half loaf. So the protected bike lanes, the wider sidewalks in the middle of these blocks, those things are not happening. Why? Well, money's one reason, sidewalks are expensive, and the bike lanes, Denver put those up on a side street instead. Hmm. It's just really hesitant to permanently take away lanes of traffic on busy roads like this one. I'm not sure I'd want to ride my bike on this street even if there were lanes. Right, as it is now, but think about what it was on that day when it was really narrow and Mm -hmm. slow and quiet but that's not what this street is. This street is a highway.
0: Right, and anything you do that kind of impedes traffic, commutes, people running errands in their cars, you know, that creates frustrations for motorists,
1: I guess. Yeah, I mean, look, Denver is a car city and it has been for a very long time, and that really shapes how the city and how CDOT design their roads here. But generally speaking, the wider a street is, the more dangerous it is. And the city knows this. They're trying to thread a needle to make these roads safer without cutting the travel lanes. Is that possible? So I've read a lot about this and I've talked with a lot of people here and around the country, and I think it is possible to make wide roads like this safer. Uh, Like a few years ago, the city changed crosswalk signals down there, over there to give pedestrians more time to cross. Uh And that really helped. Crashes declined quite a bit. But they're not eliminated. And the goal here is to eliminate crashes and deaths. And I'm really skeptical that they can actually do that without making this road smaller and slower. Will that ever happen on this portion of Colfax? Yeah, maybe someday, not anytime soon. It's going to take a much bigger investment in alternatives to driving, like public transit. CDOT and the city are talking about more bus lanes on here eventually, like sometime in the 2040s, but not anytime soon. So Denver's march
0: towards eliminating traffic deaths, at least here, is happening,
1: but it's in the slow lane. It's in the slow lane, which, to be fair to Mayor Hancock, it's really tough, it's expensive, it's culture-changing work. And it's soon going to be led by the new mayor, Mike Johnston. And he has said he's for things like slower speeds and making transit better, but change is more than just words. We're going to have to see what he actually does with a street like this one. Well, Nate, it's time to frogger back to the other side. All right, let's hold hands while we do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, God. That left What the f- And now we are stranded in the center. Let's go now. A harrowing trip across Colfax at Utica Street in Denver with CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner, And we'll be right back with a different harrowing journey through the Grand Canyon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken, returning for season four. More stories about the
5: highest highs. I've had this incredible wave of love.
7: The
0: darkest moments. I ran up to mom and I said, daddy wants me to sniff
3: this yellow powder in my nose.
5: And what it takes to make a comeback. You just have to be like, I need to put myself first. Back From Broken. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Supported in part by C.U.N. Schutz.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was 1938. The Grand Canyon and the river tearing through it, the Colorado, had been home to indigenous people for millennia. The white explorers who came after were men. Conventional wisdom was that it was no place for women. But that didn't stop two female botanists who published the first study of plant life in the area. Their story is told in the new book, Brave the Wild River, by Melissa Siboney. She's with us from Flagstaff, Arizona, where she's a science reporter for KNAU Public Radio. Melissa, welcome to the show.
4: It's great to be here.
0: The scientist who had the idea for this expedition is Elzada Clover. She was a botanist at the University of Michigan. What stands out to you about her?
4: She was a fascinating person. You know, she was born on a farm in Nebraska at a time when women were really expected to become wives and mothers and not really do anything else with their lives. She was not interested in that at all. What she was interested in was cactus. And she had this kind of wild idea that she was going to make a complete collection of all of the cactus in the Southwest. And so she would just go out and do this in the summertime. She would drive as far as she could and pick up cactus plants. And that's what led her to this idea that, you know, I could, I could get a bigger collection if I actually go down the Colorado River.
0: Were you able to find out why cactus in particular were so fascinating to her?
4: I never found that out. I know it happened sometime when she moved to Texas, um, kind of in her 20s and early 30s. I think she just fell in love with cactus while she was there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine how easy it is to fall in love with something that might not have been around me as a kid and becomes fascinating because it's new, it's novel. How did she come up with the idea of traveling through the Grand Canyon? Was it was it the cactus?
4: Well, so in 1937, in the summer, she was out collecting cactus in a place called Mexican Hat, Utah, and she was staying at a place called the Mexican Hat Lodge. And it turned out the owner of the lodge was this fellow named Norm Nevels. Yes. And he had this dream that he was gonna start a commercial river running business in the Grand Canyon, which wasn't happening at the time. Nobody was doing like regular trips in the Grand Canyon. And Norm Nevels had never done it. He was taking trips down the San Juan River, which is a much quieter, you know, nicer river. And so one evening at the lodge, they're just talking and they realized that they could team up and do this. Like Norm could get his river running business kind of off the ground. And Elzeda could go down and get the cactus plants that she wants to get.
0: I mean, it's, it's really important to remind folks that as common as river runs are today, yeah, th- this was a novel concept, that there would be a guide and that you might do this. You know, this was for science, not leisure exactly. But we, we sort of take this for granted today, don't
2: we?
4: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. River running at the time was really, really different than today. You know, they, they built the boats. Norm Nevels built the boats by hand in Mexican Hat, Utah. He had a special order, a bunch of material. You know, they didn't have really very good river maps. They didn't have very good food with them. Um, they didn't really have like waterproof materials to keep their clothes and the, you know the plant collection dry. Very, very different than if you go down the Grand Canyon today.
0: But Alzheeda had to convince Neville to guide her. Uh, I mean, there was a, a little bit of a campaign, right?
4: I think she was really the driving force behind the trip. I mean, Norm Neville certainly would have eventually gone. I mean, he had a dream to do the Grand Canyon, um, but Alzada's passion for this idea really drove it forward. And she, you know, she pestered him by letter over the next couple of months after that first meeting um, to really get this off the ground and make it happen. And uh, she and her, her partner in this endeavor, Lois Jotter, yeah. had to scrape up the money. It was quite expensive to get the materials to build the boats and all of the other supplies. Um, neither of them had a lot of money, but they were committed and they made it happen.
0: Lois Jotter, this graduate student that uh, Clover recruits, what kind of experience did Jotter have and why did she decide to go?
4: It's funny, you know, Jotter described herself as not a particularly adventurous person <laughs> um, <laughs> compared, to, compared to her mentor, Clover, who was quite, quite an adventurous. Um, but I, I'm not sure I would push back against that characteriz- characterization. She actually did have a lot of backcountry experience. Um, she had trained to be a National Park Service um, uh, naturalist at a time when women weren't being hired for those jobs. And so she did have a lot of ex- experience in the backcountry and camping outdoors and you know plant collecting and all of that. Um, but she considered herself very bookish and academic. And so I think this was a little bit outside of her comfort zone.
0: And she's quite young, right?
4: She's quite young. She's Lois Jotter is 24 years old and Elzada Clover is 41 years old.
0: We'll get to the science shortly, but there was real danger on this journey. Give us an example of a near-miss
4: Well, really things go badly right from the very beginning. And you have to remember that um, this crew, in the end, there's six of them total. None of them have any experience with going through whitewater. So they really don't know what they're getting into. They start at Green River, Utah, and they have a couple of pleasant days going down the Green River. And then they reach the Colorado and you can tell from the diaries they kept they're all just kind of in awe and they're shocked by how powerful the water is they've left in the middle of summer it's the rain rainy season the Colorado River is running very very high and none of them are quite prepared for prepared for what they're about to experience. And right at that moment, like the very first test they have of going down the Colorado River, they stop and they're looking over the very first rapid and one of the boats that they've tied up on the banks pulls away and goes off down the river without them. Mm. And this is pretty bad because they've got three boats. You can imagine they've probably split up their food pretty equally between the boats. And it's the start of the trip. So if they lose that boat and all of the food inside of it, they're going to be in real trouble. There's really no way to hike out. There's no emergency radio to call for help. Like, they're on their own out there. So Lois Jotter and her boatmen jump into one of the other boats and they chase it down and her first experience with Colorado River Rapids is this kind of wild four mile run down this incredibly high incredibly powerful river and at the end of all of that through some you know a series of unfortunate events she ends up stranded all by herself all night on the banks of the Colorado River and that was the story that really drew me into wanting to write this book. Because I think in that situation, I myself would have been completely terrified. Yes. Right? But I found a letter she wrote uh, several weeks later to her mother where she described this experience of being stranded all alone all night. And she said, I had a lovely time.
0: It's so funny because I think of the fact that there are some mornings I wake up, I get in the car uh, and I hit a red light or I miss the bus and I think, oh, my day's cursed, you know, like when, when, when adversity and neither of those are adversity, let's be clear. But like when adversity greets you out the door, I think it's very easy to become a bit scared to move forward. So the fact that that happens so quickly and that she persisted, uh, that's remarkable.
4: It really is. You know, and, and other members of the crew, the male members of the crew, had some doubts that they expressed in their diaries. You know, Norm Nevels in particular was like, maybe this was a bad idea. Um, <laughs> when you know, the, right gu- when the guide moment. is
0: saying that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> he became quite worried, you know, which you could understand for sure. Uh, but both of these women, you know, they were like, we're ready to go. And I think they were actually really kind of exhilarated by the experience.
0: It became pretty clear, and I think Nevills even says at one point, that the women handled the expedition far better than the men on the trip.
4: Yes, which is, of course, completely opposite of the expectations. I mean, you're talking about a time when the the journalists who are covering this expedition are saying, well, the the women are going to be, you know, baggage, like they're going to be really useless if there's an emergency that happens. And, of course, the opposite is true. Um, Both the women were doing incredible amounts of hard work on this expedition. They were helping get the boats downriver. They were doing all of the cooking and they were doing, of course, their plant collecting as well.
0: Yeah, I recall one scene where the two women are busy collecting plants. Remember, this is a scientific expedition. And the guys are like, where's dinner? And one of them says, why don't you eat some of the leftovers? And the women come back a little later and the men are still waiting for food.
4: That's right. Yeah, she, did, she described them as being, Clover described them as being a big-eyed and unpa- impatient under a rock. She was not impressed with that. <laughs> under
0: a rock. <laughs> Okay. I'd love to talk about the science.
4: What did they already
0: know about the botany of the Grand Canyon? What did they want to know about plant life?
4: You know, they didn't really know much because no one had gone and made a formal plant collection for Western science. Of course, the indigenous people who live in the region intimately know the botany there and have even shaped it over over generations. But for Clover and Jodder, this was really kind of uncharted territory. And so they went into it with a lot of questions. They wanted to know how the dis- different deserts in this region were kind of meeting and mingling and how those plants uh, kind of mingled with each other in the Grand Canyon. They wanted to know how um, plant life shifted with elevation as you went down the river. Really, a lot of the questions they were asking today we would think of as ecosystem science, but they were doing this at a time when the word ecosystem was not in widespread use. So they Mm. didn't have that vocabulary to describe what they were seeing. Um, But they were asking a lot of questions about how these plants were shaped by the topography and the soil and the animals. All of these questions that today we think of as part of studying an ecosystem.
0: Oh, that's fascinating, Melissa, because it strikes me that as a science reporter, you must have quite a vocabulary for ecosystems and and for the science we know today that we didn't know in 1938. So in some ways, as you're writing a book like this, you have to kind of not exactly play dumb, but like forget what you know and immerse yourself in the smaller body of knowledge back then.
4: Right. Yeah. And I wanted the reader to really be inside Clover and Jotter's heads on this journey. I didn't want to give away too much about kind of what the future was like, because I wanted you to feel like you were with them in 1938. So I did a lot of reading on, you know, kind of scientific papers in the 1930s and <gasps> what ecologists were talking about with each other at the time. And it was it was fascinating to see really kind of um, how far thinking these two women were and trying to shape what we now think of as ecosystem science.
0: So how did they collect the plants? And you hinted at this earlier. How did they keep them safe, dry, you know?
4: Right. Yeah. This was a little tricky. So um, they they created what are called plant presses as they were going down the river. So they would uh, uproot a plant or cut a plant, and they would press it between pieces of newspaper. And they would stack those together and put the whole thing between two pieces of wood and cinch it tightly. And then those were kept in the hatches of the boats, which were supposed to be waterproof, but they weren't really all that waterproof. And so one of their frustrations was that it was very, very hard to keep, keep the plant collection dry as they were going downriver, and that was a challenge that they faced the whole way.
0: You mentioned the diaries reading the diaries. Did, did both women kept diaries?
4: Both of them kept very detailed diaries, and I'm so grateful to them for um, <clears throat> excuse me for uh, wanting to preserve those diaries. They donated them to archives before they died, and uh, I'm really grateful for them for, for realizing that their story maybe would be told somewhere down the road.: Were they good writers? They were wonderful writers. They were both very funny in in different ways. Um, Clover, in particular, was a very dramatic storyteller. She had a a fine sense of drama. Um, And uh, they were both very open in their diaries about what they were experiencing.
0: Talk to me about the Native American tribes that had lived there. I mean, they were very familiar with these plants. As you said, they even had shaped the ecosystem. They had many uses for these plants. How did they react to the expedition?
4: So there are 11 uh, federally recognized tribes that are affiliated with the, the Grand Canyon who um have lived there and moved through that region for generations. And as I was researching the plants, I realized how many of the plants in the region can really be thought of as cultivated plants that the indigenous people have, you know, have brought into the region and have cultivated for food or for fiber. Plants like prickly pear and agave are just so culturally important and rich. Um, and the on this trip, the 1938 trip, Clover and Jodder didn't have, um, as far as I know, any really direct um, connections with the indigenous people. But that was something that Clover actually wanted to correct. She regretted that they didn't have time on this journey to spend time with any of the indigenous tribes. And so she returned the following year and she spent several months in the canyon with the Havasupai tribe. And I think during that time she learned a lot about how indigenous people have lived in this region. And she started to correct people when people said that she was the first woman to survive the Grand Canyon trip. Mm. She would correct them and she would say, no, I'm the first non-native woman to survive this trip.
0: We're talking about the new book, Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. Your research included your own trip down the river, Melissa. It did. Did that bring you closer to Clover and Jotter, Elzada Clover and Lois Jotter?
4: Yes, it certainly did. Maybe especially because I was quite nervous. I had never done any kind of whitewater river rafting before. Um, I joined a botany crew so I could get a sense of what it was like to actually have to work while going through the Grand Canyon. And um, it was incredible. And I did feel closer to these two women as I was going through that journey. Of course, the river has changed a great deal. And of course, it's much safer now to do this kind of trip. Mm. But uh, my own kind of apprehension about doing it, I think, helped me tap, tap into it, the, the nervousness that they must have felt.
0: If we haven't said it already, how long was their journey?
4: It was about 40, it was 42 days um, from Green River, Utah, and they ended at Lake Mead, which was just then starting to fill up behind Hoover Dam.
0: I I have to just think it it would be so hot and sticky and gross and just, I, um, I would be so distracted by my own like B.O. that I would find it hard to do anything, you know, like science or to keep focus or uh, let, let alone at a time, as you say, when the clothing and the gear just are not that well suited for the kind of aqueous environment.
4: Right. Yeah, and it you know it wasn't a great time of year to go. They got you know rained on several times. There were thunderstorms. You know, it was it was 110 degrees when they made it to Lake Mead. Um, pretty unpleasant conditions all around. And yeah, you know they didn't have you know fancy clothing to to help them through this. They really didn't, since they didn't know what they were getting into, they kind of scrapped together the gear that they thought might be useful. Um, but it's not like they really had a guide for what to expect. And the rapids, I mean, they, they wrote extensively about the rapids in, in their diaries because they didn't really know how to tackle them. And they were quite big and quite scary.
0: It's interesting that this trip in 1938 came... When the Park Service was young and there were conflicting philosophies about what its priorities should be for the Grand Canyon, um, could you speak to that a bit?
4: Right. Yeah, I wanted to understand kind of what was going on in the 1930s with um, the, the Park Service and the Grand Canyon region. And it was it was fascinating to me to to learn about how very focused at that time the Park Service was on tourism. Mm. They were, you know, they were concerned that there weren't enough tourists, <laughs> which just seems like a funny issue. Um, but it was still, you know, the, the Great Depression, and there had kind of been a slump in travel. And so the Park Service was very focused on bringing more people into the parks. And they really kind of groomed the parks, you know, like in in Grand Canyon, they introduced animals that didn't necessarily belong that they thought would be attractive for tourists to look at, things like pronghorn. Um, And they kind of groomed the trees to make them more pleasing, you know. It wasn't really, you know, about preserving nature. It was about kind of presenting nature for people to look at. And there were folks at the time, both within and without the Park Service, who were advocating for a different way of doing things, who were talking about, well, we should stop stocking fish and we should stop moving around species and we should just let this place be and we should really uh, focus on science-based management. And I think Clover and Jotter's survey would have been quite useful for that because they were cataloging non-native species that had already shown up along the river channel. But there wasn't a lot of interest from, you know, kind of the upper level Park Service at the time for doing that kind of management. Well, and
0: when she returns, uh, when both of them return to the University of Michigan, um, they're, they're kind of met with, I don't know, like a bit of a dismissive attitude by their colleagues.
4: Yeah, and they really faced that the whole way down, um, being told before, during, and after the trip that they were just doing a kind of a publicity stunt, or, you know, they were being daredevils. And even their own colleagues really didn't see them as doing serious scientific work. And frankly, that had a lot to do with the fact that they were female scientists, which wasn't so common at the time. And they were both struggling to get recognition from their colleagues and from the wider world for the work that they were doing. We're doing
0: I, I'll just end with this Jotter uh, actually went on a second scientific expedition on the river when she was 80 years old that's right in just a few seconds what was she doing on that She
4: came back with a scientific expedition that was tracking how the river had changed over the last half century or so, and her observations as a skilled scientist, as a botanist, and as someone who had rafted the river before all of these changes took place were critical for actually shaping the kind of management that we have on the river today.
5: Oh, Uh,
0: that's Lois Jotter and Elzada Clover, the women who went on this expedition in 1938, and they're the subject of Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. Our thanks to Melissa Sivany. Thanks so much for being with us.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: She's a science reporter at KNAU Radio in Flagstaff. From the Colorado River now to Monument Creek in El Paso County, an artist is exploring its history and significance, as CPR's Dan Boyce reports.
2: It's no longer just a woo-woo thing to talk about.
7: That's Erin Elder on her Monument Creek project, From Source to Mouth.
2: The idea that we are connected to water, that we depend on water is an essential truth that cuts through all of those cultural divides and social polarities.
7: The Albuquerque-based artist has walked nearly the entire length of the 27-mile creek, climbing from its end point in downtown Colorado Springs to its headwaters on Mount Deception northwest of the city. And those headwaters...
2: I thought, well, maybe it's, you know, shooting out of the ground like a geyser or dripping off a rock face...
7: As she walks higher, the creek shrinks and shrinks until she reaches this swampy meadow.
2: I was so surprised to find that it didn't shoot out of the ground, it didn't drip. You know, it, it pooled actually.
7: Seeping out of the earth.
2: It was impossible to see the exact spot that it came out of the ground.
7: That realization is one of many meditations Elder is bringing to her examination of the creek. She's recording oral histories, producing watercolor paintings, and taking photos of seemingly innocuous locations.
2: You notice that it neighbors residential areas and industrial zones.
7: College campuses, the interstate.
2: There are cattle grazing, and there are beaver dams, and there's the railroad.
7: It winds over some stretches, runs through straight-line canals and others. Creeks are so interesting, right? I mean, they're an ever-changing entity by nature. Colorado College assistant professor of music, Ido Aharoni, is having one of his classes contribute to the project. Students in his environment and sound course produced more than a dozen ambient soundscapes of the creek, like this. and this. To that idea of the creek being an ever-changing entity, even Aharoni did not expect how right he would be. Students recorded their sound during unprecedented regional rainfall in mid-June. We had this big flooding that uh, made it sound completely different, look completely different, suddenly there was all this water. He points to the famous saying from ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus. No man ever steps in the same river twice. For it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. Aharoni says where the individual students pointed their microphones, how close or far they were from the stream, it all totally changes the experience for the listener.
1: That's where Aaron's work and the idea of recording the creek in different ways becomes attractive, both to expose people to the creek who might not know it, but also those who might think they know it and perhaps sort of take it for granted or have stopped asking questions about it.
7: The soundscapes will be incorporated into an interactive map of the creek, And will be used alongside her pictures and recorded oral histories for an exhibit at the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center set to open in September. The cleanliness of Monument Creek, or lack thereof, has for a long time soured the stream's reputation in the city. Trash still spills from abandoned homeless camps into the creek along much of its length. Yet concerted efforts in recent years have led to a turnaround in the creek's ecosystem as it flows into Fountain Creek which runs into the Arkansas River, down to the Mississippi, and eventually into the Gulf of Mexico.
2: That journey to me is a really fascinating thing to imagine.
7: In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News.
0: A note, Colorado College holds the license for KRCC, which is operated by Colorado Public Radio. And this is
5: Colorado Matters from CPR News. A small monument in Denver marks one of history's more prosaic moments. It reads, on this spot in 1935, Louis E. Ballast created the cheeseburger. Colorado's first drive-in, the Humpty Dumpty Barrel, once stood at Firth Court and Spear Boulevard. A truer statement on that monument might read that the first trademark for the cheeseburger was awarded there as eateries across the country make earlier claims to the invention of putting cheese on a patty served inside a sliced bun. But less ambiguous is the origin of another diner favorite. 1893, Cripple Creek brewer Frank J. Wisner gazes east to Cow Mountain. Its snow-covered peak above darkened slopes inspires him. He drops a scoop of ice cream into a mug of root beer, inventing the root beer float, or as he called it, the Black Cow. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio.
0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One of the world's biggest concert tours is in Denver. Taylor Swift performs tonight and tomorrow. CPR's Eden Lane spoke with Coloradans who can barely wait.
3: Most of the headlines around Taylor Swift's ERA's tour stops tout the huge economics. Yet for her devoted fans, attending the concert has the same personal connection they feel with Swift's music. Getting the ticket is the
6: hard part. Oh my gosh. Okay, my friend Ellen and I, we both signed up for the verified fan ticket. And then she never got an email, which is crazy because she's seen her in concert for every tour that she's had nurse bethany Jordahl logged on first thing that morning and battled against ticket system crashes
3: but she didn't let anything stop her when she got back in on her phone
6: because so i was pregnant with my second i had my ob appointment i was like i gotta go to my ob appointment so i'm just gonna take my phone keep it plugged in and keep an eye on this thing throughout the rest of the day and i was so exhausted after that whole ordeal of six hours of just watching my phone Roommates
3: since college, Elaine and Mackenzie, hoped joining the Ticketmaster Club would help them secure tickets. Elaine says getting in the system was only half of it. (laughs) It was very stressful
4: because it was like we would click a couple seats and then they would go away. But then we got four together and I I don't even think that it's really set in yet. Sixth grader
3: Liliana and her mom couldn't find tickets when they went on sale. but...
5: But my
1: neighbor, she had four tickets to the concert. And about a month ago, she invited me to the tour, and I was very surprised. I, I thought, this is going
6: to be a wonderful experience.
3: I asked each of these fans, what inspires this deep personal connection? With a birthday just six days apart from Swift's, Bethany Jordal says it feels like they've been growing up together
6: so Speak Now Taylor's version came out so Thursday night at 10pm I was listening to it at the same time I was breastfeeding my daughter just listening to that song like one of the first lines is talking about like her hand clasped around your finger it's so quiet in the world tonight her little eyelids flutter cause she's dreaming so you tuck her in and turn on her favorite nightlight and I'm just ho- sitting there holding my little three month old and just sobbing sobbing just like it's so quiet it's just you with me baby girl <laughs>
3: Mackenzie says her connection began at a birthday party sleepover.
4: And my best friend got the debut album CD. And I was like, who is this? So we all listened to it all morning long when we woke up and I was in love with her. So I was like, "Okay, mom, I need to go get it. So she was officially like that was my first CD that I ever had. I still have it.
3: Do you still have a CD player?
4: Oh, uh, no. <laughs> I don't, unfortunately.
3: We just like to look at it. The Denver Stop for Taylor Swift's Eras Tour isn't just Liliana's first time to see her in concert. It's her first concert period. But she already knows the protocol for Swift concerts, planning a special outfit, and making bracelets to trade.
1: Yeah, I have the bracelets right here, actually. How m- oh
3: my goodness, how many did
1: you make? Um, I've made about 70 right now. Oh <laughs> my and I'm my goal is to make 100 by
4: like in like four days.
3: Mackenzie and Elaine say trading bracelets is special to them too.
4: I mean, it's just something like concerts are such a feel good moment when you get to be with all these other people that care so much about something that you care about.
3: Jordahl herself has a really special story. Taylor Swift helped bring her child into the world.
6: When I had my first daughter, I made a Taylor Swift labor and delivery playlist. And when they're like, all right, it's time to push, I played Ready For It by Taylor Swift. And then they also asked me to turn it down because it was too loud. I think the other patients could hear my pump up music. Liliana and her mom.
1: I just love her. She like really inspired me from like all these things. Her songs make me happy. I jump up and down when I hear them.
6: Once I'm going to go to the tour, I'm going to freak out. I know I um, uh, it's great. And I think if she were to be inspired by another woman, why not Taylor Swift, right? I think she's a great inspiration. So,
3: Taylor Swift has been selling out stadiums and arenas since her first tour in 2009. Tickets for the Eras Tour, her first since 2018, have been sold out since shortly after they first went on sale. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News.
0: And we will wrap up today's show with another musician, Isadora Eden. Westward says, for the Denver artist, sadness is an art form. Eden's music combines introspective lyrics with lush vocals and sonic texture. Eden calls it fuzz folk. Originally from Massachusetts, she has made a name for herself locally and beyond, landing on Spotify's Fresh Finds playlist. This week, Isadora Eden releases her debut album, Forget What Makes It Glow will perform tonight in Fort Collins and Saturday in Denver. We will leave you with the track Haunted. Dora Eden of Denver. And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to my colleagues.
1: Tyler Bender. Carl Bielick, Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer.
2: Andrea
3: Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher.
1: Matt Hers, Tom
7: Hess. Hess Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano.
0: Shane Rumsey. Chandra thomas Whitfield, And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.